0: Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm economic and social analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcasts. We have our seminar series, which gives you the chance to have a listen back to some of our most interesting seminar or webinar presentations. We have our 10 minute lesson series, which is a brief overview of policy topics, touching on the relevant things that we think our listeners should know about. And then we have our interview series, and today's episode is one of those. Today, I'm chatting with Davey Philip, who currently manages the Community Resilience Programme that developed out of the Community Paradigm Programme in 2010. Davy was a founding member of FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability and Sustainable Projects Ireland Limited. He's joined by my very own colleague, Michelle Murphy, our Research and Policy Analyst, an expert on all things just transition. I hope you enjoy it. OK, so, Davey, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this podcast with us. Just transition is such a big thing at the moment. Um, so it's really, really important. Thank you so much. How are you both doing today?
1: Great.
2: Fantastic. Good to be here.
0: Excellent. So, Davy, I'm going to start with you, if I can, first of all, can you explain to our audience a little bit about what Cultivate is and, and maybe an introduction into Clock and what it does? Because I have to say, I had a view that it was only accessible to, say, school groups or or community groups, but you were telling me in the the, the before times that actually it's much broader than that. I will not ask you the same question, Michelle, because if people have come to this podcast, hopefully
2: they know what social justice Ireland is. Okay, Okay, let me dive in. So, and maybe just to get into it, maybe go back in time a little to the end of the 1990s, where I think for the first time in Ireland, we started to see uh, people framing their work in sustainability. And we'd had the Earth Summit, and we now had uh, a 21st century agenda, and we were clear that there was something new or fresh that brought more cohesion to quite a disparate group of activities from social justice to environment to community to economies. So uh, at that time um, I I was involved with a number of people at Dublin Food Co-op looking at how do we really uh, accelerate sustainability and, and normalize and mainstream it and we came up with this very ambitious project of starting an eco-village where you could see high performance houses and renewable energy and organic production and woodlands in a living community. Uh, And we also, um, so we launched an educational uh, charity, Sustainable Projects Ireland, uh, with this idea to progress an eco-village in Ireland. And um, after maybe a couple of years of building our membership and refining our ideas, We realized that so many towns and villages were in decline. What is the point of setting up a new village, an eco village, a sustainable village? So we changed a little and looked at joining an existing settlement. So we looked for land all over Ireland in 2003, eventually found clock Jordan, went through a large consultation process with the local community, Uh, and bought the land in 2004. It's a 67 acre estate. We got sort of outline planning for 130 homes and three community buildings. Uh, We had already plans before we even arrived here about demonstrating community supported agriculture and other community led or community level uh, uh, actions like car clubs and, and, and all sorts of ways to, to bring sustainability into our everyday living. Now, at the same time, uh, I was involved with an, um, similar people, but and sometimes the same people um, putting on a big event in Temple Bar, the Convergence Sustainable Living Festival, which we set up a cooperative, a workers cooperative to run that festival, uh, which started in 1990. And the Sustainable Ireland Cooperative is Cultivate. And the reason we're called cultivate after two years of doing the convergence festival which is a week long uh, set of activities in temple bar the cultural quarter because uh, it was a cultural festival not an environmental festival that was the real point we're trying to show a more holistic approach to sustainability and um, once we had um done that for a few years we were invited by temple bar properties to look at the viking adventure center which had closed and was an empty building could you animate that and so we put together a proposal for the Cultivate Sustainable Living and Learning Centre and moved into Temple Bar. Now we had a we had a bit of an identity problem. We had Convergence we were known for, and people called us Convergence. We had a cooperative called Sustainable Ireland Cooperative that was driving our work. And now we had a new centre, Cultivate. So we actually called our centre Cultivate. I would be We trade as Cultivate still, uh, although Sustainable Ireland Cooperatives in the background. So that's the history of both uh, Sustainable Ireland Cooperative Cultivate and the Eco Village. Now, Cultivate, for 10, we've been here 10 years now. We moved after um, 10 years in Dublin running centres. We ran another centre after Temple Bar, the old uh, ENFO building with Eco Inesco. We ran that for, for two years. And then we moved our whole co op down to the eco-village and we now run the enterprise centre in um, the eco-village, Cultivate does, as a living lab Um, it brings together about 10 organisations have their hot desks or their desks here in the co-working. We have a food hub with a digital marketplace uh, that the farm runs and a training network for community-led and cooperative food initiatives across Ireland. Uh, we have a digital fab lab, a digital fabrication lab, where we can make and create and prototype things. Um, we have different education training spaces that are digitally enabled so we can do better distributed or blended events. So that's our centre, the Cultivate run now, the WeCreate Centre in, in, in um, the Eco Village, And the Ecovillage, Colette, as you were saying, is a fantastic destination, not just for schools or uh, university groups or community groups, um, for everyone. And our objective when we set up the eco-village was, was to be the strapline is building sustainable community, and our objective is to be uh, a sort of research resource for all and an asset for all. Um, that people could test ideas here, incubate new ideas here. People can come and live here. Um, so it is quite a interesting, complex. A set of arrangements now. It's an ecosystem of innovation rather than one company or two companies leading. It's quite complex. So maybe that's enough of an introduction to set us on it, but it really came out of, fast I emerged at this time as well, the Sustainable Economics Foundation was set up in 1998, then Sustainable Projects Ireland, the Ecovillage in, in 1999, and then Sustainable Ireland Cooperative in 2000. So you had, um, from my side, uh, quite a few um new things coming into existence to really take on the 21st century agenda at that time now the 2030 agenda sustainability but from a more complex and whole systems approach.
0: So you were really doing you know just transition before it was cool you know before the cool kids got into it Um, and I thought that's fascinating to me what I suppose, and this is a question for both of you, and I might go to Michelle first just to bring her in, um, what does a just transition mean to you? Is it, is it very environmentally focused or is it, as Davy says, far more holistic when we think about it?
1: No, I think it's 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 holistic. I mean, the whole point of a transition is is change. The whole point of a just transition. Well, the fundamental principle behind it is that you don't leave anybody behind be that people, communities, sectors, regions. And uh, So so for for me, transition, it's not just about reducing your emissions. It's one one element and it's one integral element. But it's also about all those things that you need to transform your society, society, your economy, the things that we rely on every day. So it means investing in, you know, an integrated social protection system, an effective one. We saw how important that was in the pandemic and how quickly the PUP uh, was rolled out, and I suppose looking to the future, looking at a more integrated and effective social protection system, we need to start considering things like universal basic, basic income, minimum social floors of income and services. How do we adapt to ensure that everybody is supported at all stages during their life? It means investing education, training, lifelong learning. <clears throat> so not just the you know primary, second, third level education. It's it's adult learning, it's upskilling, it's lifelong learning. It's investing in childcare, after school care, out of school care, elder care, health care, quality services, all of the things that people and communities and regions need and will need if we're actually to achieve our 2030 targets. And, you know, the national ambition to transform how our economy and our society operates. And, you know, to me, that is what just transition is. It's not just environmental, obviously, environmental is an integral element but it's you know it's a much more holistic approach
0: it's almost as if if you got the societal aspects right and the economy aspect right aspects right that they will have a positive impact on the environment as well like
1: that you know it's almost like it's interconnected pretend um no interconnected and, you know and that's and it's so it's really important at a local level i think look you know local communities know You know, what is or isn't working their local economy, their local environment, you know, the social challenges. And then when you look at a national and a more European level, it means that, you know, there's so much focus on the economic and financial aspect of the EU and the macro imbalances procedure and, you know, economic policy and all the things that you sign up to and they're, you know, they're they're binding. But, you know, you need some sort of social imbalances procedure as well and environmental imbalances procedure so that they're all, Balance and that social and environmental issues are actually given the same weight, the same policy weight as economic issues. And I think if you did that, then it'd be a lot easier for Europe to reach its 20 targets as well, but a lot easier for all of us to integrate them into our daily lives.
0: Mm. Thank you. And and Dave, I suppose, same question to you in terms of a a just transition. I mean, you've already mentioned, you know, the the eco-village, for example, you've got 130 homes, you know, presumably they're they're sustainably um fueled that you've got r- remote working hubs essentially hot desking before again that the pandemic even made it almost uh, imperative you know you've got these kind of fab labs in terms of innovation around uh how people work and then you've got obviously educational programs like that very much to me feeds into what michelle was talking about in terms of when we talk about a just transition it's it's more than, than you know the, the environment, but it's it's obviously to do with that. What what does it look like to you?
2: Well, I think in in 2005 <clears throat> we got really involved in the transition towns process. So that was for me the first time we started to hear about the need for a transition. And I totally agree with Michelle on the definition of a just transition. Unless we have a just transition, we just will not have the transition. We'll not make it. And, and the challenges and crises we face right now are one of fragmentation and siloization um, and a crisis of imagination. We, ha- we have no sense of what we're aiming for. What is a just transition? What is good living? What is a well-being economy in opposition to an extractive economy or one that is eroding our, um, the social conditions? So we need frameworks that help us see a holistic approach. I've for 20 years told people I'm not an environmentalist. Uh, what we're talking about is much more or as much uh, around the economy and society and community and what we can do when we see um, things from a systemic perspective. We need, we need an ecological worldview. Right now we're working in a quite a reductionist, individualistic worldview that isn't, uh, doesn't lend well to seeing um, things holistically or systemically. However, in the 2030 Agenda, we had the Sustainable Development Goals, which uh, purported to be a, a sort of more holistic uh, a way of, of, of looking at the challenge ahead. And it, it helps us frame what a just transition needs to be in so many different areas with targets to reach them. However, until Stockholm Resilience did that wedding cake uh, diagram of the Sustainable Development Goals, which forces us to look systemically, unless we have a healthy biosphere and ecological systems, we don't have a healthy society. And a healthy society is nested in that. So we start to think about nested systems. Now, when the economy, which is a a system that works for society, needs to be nested in society, not as we currently see, or even in traditional sustainable development, you're told about the three-legged stool, the Venn diagram, where we've got to balance the economy, environment, and society. Which is really dangerous because we're starting to see as being led by the market and driven by the economy rather than the well-being of our societies or communities or our ecosystems. And we can see where we're at with that. So the SDGs gave us a framework in some ways that was a coherent framework. And I, I see that as the biggest value of the sustainable development goals is really having a common language to talk about sustainability that includes social justice, economy, work, meaning. Uh, uh, equality, so it's bringing all these into the same agenda. However, I still think it's a bit difficult for people to see beyond a block of platitudes that we've heard all our lives. When now, in the last five or six years, with Kate Rayworth's donut economic, ecological economics framework and the Stockholm resilience thresholds, ecological thresholds, I think we have a framework that really helps us see how we're all connected, how all our causes. Have a, a common purpose, and if we need to stay within that social, uh, that the ecological ceiling, those thresholds we can't cross, but also, more importantly, or as importantly, build that social foundation uh, that allows everyone to have a good life in the carrying capacity of this planet. Then I think we're moving forward in a coherent way, uh, and started to think more strategically of being together, not Social Justice Ireland off doing social justice stuff, FASTA looking at the economic stuff, Ecovillage doing sustainable community. We're all still quite fragmented, even within our own sectors. And someone like the coalition in 2030 gives us an opportunity, quite a wide uh, network of organisations working in different ways towards uh, the just transition or a sustainable thing. And then maybe, Colette, we can bring in a little the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, because I think this is even um, uh, really important that, uh, again, another alliance that helps us imagine what the well-being economy is. What does that mean? Rather than coming in, uh, and I think we, we need to come in hard on degrowth and challenging growth and looking beyond debt-based economics. And, you know, there's so many things that uh, we frame an opposition, we come in with uh, we are opposing what you're saying, and that's all needed, but we need something to get on common ground if we're going to make this just transition, something that everyone sees this as relevant to them. Oh, I'm not an environmentalist, that's not for me, or I'm not a social justice advocate, that's not for me, but this is for everyone. And being able to bring it down to that local level where people can step in and engage, can dialogue, can build ambition, can see how we might build more sustainability elements into uh, our local places and have flourishing places and aim for flourishing communities rather than some of the ways that uh, sustainability or these things are framed. So there's a lot there to to unpick, but I think there's quite a bit in it. How do we we, um, build momentum towards a just transition? Well, we're not gonna do that through the sustainable development goals. That doesn't motivate engage, encourage people. But this well-being economy framework could help us see how everyone is involved in a transition towards this. And unless we're all involved and included and our voices are there and heard. And yeah, so anyway, there's a lot there, I think.
0: In the words of the late Great Meatloaf, you took the words right out of my mouth, Davy. I was exactly going to ask you in relation to the, the well-being economy for all, because you're one of the founding members of, of the Ireland hub for that. And when we talk about policies, you know, the Sustainable Development Goals are obviously very, very important, both in terms of, you know, our international picture, but also then from an Irish perspective. Um, you know, can you explain a bit more what the whole banks to do and, and, and what the, the, the whole concept of a well-being economy might be?
2: Well, I think the well-being economy is, an, is a, a reaction to the extractive economy and more and more people seeing that the, the debt-based economy, even though it has been very useful for us, is taking us in a very dangerous direction and that we need to move beyond or we need to have prosperity without growth or we need to dematerialize growth or we need to build that social foundation. So there, So, yeah, there's... Um, there's something in the the Wellbeing Economy Alliance has emerged globally to try and find different ways to bring that into countries. So the Wellbeing Economy Alliance hub for Ireland the North South, includes Social Justice Ireland as founding members and on the steering as well. And I, I suppose it's trying to add value, not replicate the work we do as potential stakeholders in this coalition. So that there's still the brilliant work on uh, that Social Justice Ireland do or that FASTA do, but there's something beyond that that we could do as this coalition. And in our launch last year, Kate Raworth, um, Jen from Carnegie and um, Catherine Trebek, really set out this idea of a well-being economy. And we brought in um, the artists to pepper and sort of change the dynamic. And what we really learned through that, that the spoken word poet that spoke before Kate Rayworth. The impact she had in the participants, I don't know how many, 100 participants or something, was almost as much as Kate Raworth. So the the Alliance now, we're sort of trying to look at a social imaginary. How, What might the role of the artists and the cultural creatives be in help us in imagining uh, an island of well-being? Something to aim for, uh, Not just the the good work that NESC and the government and others are doing on well-being indicators and the need for this. That all has to be done. But there's something that I think could be a a really good contribution from the Alliance, um, which is looking at coming into this with kindness, almost love, if you like, uh, appreciation of what we're looking for and what we're aiming for. Uh, I think we're really helpful for all our work. So we are continuing that process of how do we run a community, of practice, a culture creators, a social imaginary, and with outputs that might help citizens uh, see what good living and the well-being economy could be. And without that, what are we doing? If we're going into the dark with the assumptions and blind spots that we've held. There has to be someone that shakes us out of that or something. I don't know, Michelle, if someone new to hearing that, because I know Colette's heard all that. How does that sit? Is that going that there's something in that? Because I think we're onto we're onto something with this.
1: Yes, I suppose for me, when you talk about the social matter, I think that's for me that's a clear pathway to get young people involved. Because yeah. I don't think the young person's voice is in the just transition discussion. It's certainly in the climate debate, but you don't. What is a young person's view of what a well-being economy will look for them? Because they're ultimately going to be the ones living in it a lot longer than us you know, what sort of jobs do they see or opportunities for themselves in the well-being economy? How do they want to live? You know, what what services, what opportunities? How, how do they imagine it and how do, do they see it? I don't think their voice certainly is is part of, I think, that discussion at the moment. And you made a really interesting point there, Davy, about, you know, the need for to bring it down to a more local level so that people and, and communities can see the advantages for them. You know, we we know the Stockholm resilience, you know, how they divide up the economy, society and biosphere and, and the donut. But for most people, that means absolutely nothing to them. You know, what means something to them is like, can I can I access public transport from where I am? Yes or no. Uh, is there care available for an elderly family member? And um, I would like to upskill because I think my job could be automated. Are those opportunities available to me? I'm worried about what happens to me when I reach pension age because I don't have a private pension. Will I be able to survive from what the state provides? I think though, those, are, those are the kind of things what, that matter to people. For young people, it's going to be like, what opportunities are going to be available to them? So I think not only is it the the piece there about imagining what it would be and about getting the cultural community involved. But I think it also means that we need our politicians, local and national, framing their discussions in the same way. Because if you don't do that, then policy will never follow Mm -hmm. that goal and it will always be developed in a way, you know, not based on the well-being economy, not taking into account of donut economics, the biosphere society economy. It will continue to be based on I suppose, what the dominant economic theory is at the moment. So ultimately, the outcomes then won't be what you want them to be. And as you said yourself, Debbie, you, you certainly won't have a just transition then. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's really important that we started to move towards this idea, even conceptually, of a well-being framework for policy, for policy making. Um, You know, when it was published after the budget in 2021, or sort after budget 2021, you know, it, there wasn't a huge amount of fanfare to it. And even the first report from the Taoiseach's office and the next report on the consultation, there wasn't a huge amount of push to it. But I think it's given us the language to be able to engage with stakeholders to say, This is what you yourselves have determined as being important. like One of these 11 dimensions is around subjective well-being. It's around that person. It's around the local. There's another one in relation to community engagement. And that obviously then comes with uh, deliberative democracy. So there's there's all of that, that that's desperately, desperately needed. And then we look at some of the more recent policies that have, have come to pass. So we've we've seen the NRRP and how that's being linked with our, our climate targets, particularly. We've seen the new Climate Act, the Climate Action Plan. You know, is this enough to get us where we need to be? What do you reckon, Michelle?
1: Initially, no, because I think you need you need more ambition. You certainly need more action. Um, like just take the NRRP, for example. And you know, it's really welcome that the, the number one priority in it is advancing the green transition. But when you actually go through the down through the detail of what's in there, apart from I suppose the retrofit loan scheme, really a lot of it is never people won't, won't know what it is or how it impacts on them. And if you, you know, what's really disappointing from our perspective, and, you know, we made a very detailed submission to the Department of Antisic on that, is that there weren't any initiatives in there strengthening the green and social infrastructure at a community level or a regional level. You know, the, those are the kind of things that are going to connect with people. And I suppose those, those were sort of lacking. There's certainly, I mean, there's just more high level elements in there, And some of them, you imagine, would have been delivered anyway, regardless of the, you know, the the European funding or not. And I think if you are going to deliver on the ambitions of the Climate Action Plan, and if you're going to get people, the sectors particularly, to be able to buy into the carbon budgets and deliver what's set out in those carbon budgets, then you need to make things practical. You need to deliver them at local level because, you know, you need to start delivering on those actions now. And, you know looking at what's in the nrp for example it's limited in terms of what it can deliver Mm -hmm. especially in terms of you know regional and local level and how as you said how you embed that you don't necessarily need fanfare around these things but you need them to be embedded so they actually just become ingrained in our daily lives those 11 dimensions underpin everything that we do and i think that's i suppose what's Disappointing about that. I mean the the plan itself, uh, the carbon budgets, they're welcome. the plan itself, we've discussed the carbon budgets with the Oroctus Committee on Environment and Climate action. You know, people are generally supportive, but what remains to be seen is how the different sectors are able to go going to be able to meet the targets that are set out in there. And I suppose the agriculture sector in particular faces, Challenges, But it's not just that sector as well. I mean, the transport sector too, we're also facing challenges, you know, even in terms of, uh, and I'll finish here because I don't want to take up too much time. The fact that, you know, we've an apology in terms of reducing energy emissions and increasing our renewable energy generation. But then if you look at the amount of electricity electricity that data centres are currently consuming and are going to consume, we, we haven't yet upgraded the grid. I mean, those two policies are completely incoherent, yet um, we're still pursuing both of them. And to me, that if you were to truly embed the well-being framework, the biosphere and the donut economy into those, you know, those um, our national policies, then you would limit the the type of incoherence that we have.
2: Yeah. I'd like to pick up on that? um, You're nudging
1: a
0: lot. Well, I
2: totally agree with everything Michelle is saying. And as well as the lack of ambition or the need to get greater ambition for a lot of these policies, there is uh, very clearly a lack of cohesion between them. And they can be contradictory or they're not seen as a framework. So it brings us back to the need for a well-being framework that all policies can be in mental health, community, rural regeneration, energy efficiency, town centre first, they're all the same. We're all heading in the same direction, but we're we're moving in different ways, or not seeing a whole, or not seeing how they're connected. And I, I do think that the there was hope for the SDGs that that might be a sort of unifying framework. Or now this emerging well-being frameworks that NESC and, and you No know, Social Justice Ireland have been involved in. I think that's brilliant. But there's one little caveat because I'm really supportive of the well-being vision. Um, process that <clears throat> and I know Social Justice Ireland and others work with IEN to get through the public participation networks and it's really good it helps people start to see <coughs> sorry it helps people see those connections but I read through them I was saying to you last week or someone Colette a, a lot of them are lacking the context so yes you can go and ask people what they need and where what they want but unless we're somehow clear of the context we're all operating in that we need the social ceiling of uh, ecological ceiling and the social foundation then we're not re- we could be going in different places ourselves so I think it comes back to this need for an imaginary to be able to imagine where we're heading and try and build some momentum ambition for a just transition that is much more participative and uh, allows us all voices but it's at that local level I, I agree with Michelle that we need, I mean, in the climate, the Green Deal and the Climate Pact is full of language like subsidiarity and that will bring it down to the local level. The Smart Village program from Europe has got a, a big focus on the sub-local, the neighborhood and village level that fits well into town center first and that we're starting to. Um, to balance development and and get um, our, our places being able to strengthen our local economies um, so that we've got some resilience of vulnerable long supply chains or being able to bring down our emissions in our current way. Just on the climate action, when people hear climate, climate action, I think it freezes people. So what do we do? Do we change our light bulbs and drive electric cars? What do we do as community climate action? What is that? So, a lot of my recent work or the work we're doing at Cultivate is looking at community led local development, what leaders have been doing for 20 years. Can we show uh, how that process and the new leader in 2023 will even have more circular economy and climate and biodiversity actions? Uh, And yet, I know that some counties in Ireland have had difficulties in having citizens drawing down the funding available for certain actions that may be seen as environmental and not knowing, or climate action, and not knowing. What is it? So, I mean, with other colleagues, I go around the country with um, funded by local development companies to give a sort of communities for climate action course. And really, we focus on resilience. We focus on the circular economy, community wealth building, you know, really starting to show that this is community-led local development. You can come together and you could put in for a community garden or a community farm. or You could start to look at more cooperative approaches to meeting our needs here, providing more meaningful work in our local economy um, and building uh, stronger communities that can sort of cope with the disruptions. Because the thing is, and we're very clear we've entered this uh, critical decade in a pandemic, in our climate and ecological emergency that we sometimes forget about. So we're so ill-equipped to deal with the cascades of shocks and disruptions that we're going to face now, as we see every time we turn our television on. And I mean, sometimes these images of the, the impacts of the fires and the floods, they're biblical now. Whole towns in Colorado in December burnt to the ground. You know, we're so are we ready in our local places to be sustainable, not for the reasons to tick boxes, to reduce our emissions, but to have a life that is actually worth living in the carrying capacity of this planet and that's fair and just. And I think when activists see that um, fair and just and the need to do that, especially as you were saying, Michelle, the young activists, you know, what is the hope? Where are we going? Uh, you know, Because the the, the, the the proposal to young people with the, the social norms and the expectations of um, of the work and and everything is it's just not attractive uh, you know and and now we have a very serious issue called climate grief or climate anxiety especially with young people and we're going to see more of that so i think for me it's about bringing as many people together into the conversation imagining together and building the resilience of these places um, which will help reach a lot of these targets and goals and we need these policies but we need much more coherence in them that we're going in the same direction not contradictory as you have identified.
0: Absolutely and if I can just I suppose given that you know you mentioned the climate crisis, you mentioned the ecological crisis, you know we're aware that we've just come through a pandemic, Um, we have several other crises I could mention but you know one in particular that has been in the news certainly recently, in relation to the cost of living and one of the responses to that was to you know increase the fuel allowance give um one-off kind of payments but really when it comes down to it if you want to make a change in the energy side it's about making sure that that just transition again it's about retrofitting but about doing it properly and michelle i know you have been out and proud in in the media and, and certainly did a huge amount of work for social justice ireland in this space i mean is it the great news it's lauded to be? I mean, one of the things that I that I took from it was the free one for very low-income households. The build cutoff for that is 2006, whereas yeah. for the ones that there is a contribution to, the build cutoff is 2011. And that, to me, just mm-hmm. inherently seems unjust.
1: Yeah, and, you know, what, what is the justification for that? I mean, we know that retrofitting is actually the most cost-effective way to, you know improve energy efficiency and reduce your emissions from energy and you know any investment in that area is welcome but you know to, to say that the the scheme that was launched two weeks ago will you know have an impact on the rising cost of living you know that's not correct because retrofitting is a long-term piece of work you know you can't retrofit your home overnight so it's not going to have an impact on reducing your cost of living and overall it's a a reduction energy costs over a considerable amount of time. You know, you don't get all all the return in one year. year. The other element of it is in terms of, I mean, yes, we know what was announced in the budget in terms of local authority housing, and we welcomed that um, and the focus on fuel poverty. But if you're taking the subsidy route, which, which government is, and they've also, there's a low interest loan, Uh, was also announced when this plan was announced, but the the detail hasn't yet been published. What ends up happening is that generally these subsidies... Can't be taken up taken up by those who need it most. Those who are in energy inefficient households and those who are in energy poverty. They're taken up by those who can afford them because those are the people who have the savings to be able to avail of the upfront cost. Be it twenty five thousand or fifty thousand, either amount of money is a significant amount of money for most families in this country. So the problem is that all of us are contributing to the cost. Because um, a lot of the the funding available is, you know, it comes from the carbon tax fund. So all of us are contributing to carbon taxes. But what happens is the subsidies end up becoming a wealth transfer to households who have the savings, who have the higher incomes, who can afford to apply for the grant and get their home deep retrofitted. And in the plan, there was also the, the smaller works grants, which were announced you know, which are welcome in terms of getting your attic insulated, uh, other elements, I think, in terms of your back boiler, new doors and windows. But does that mean that people on low incomes should, you know, only ever aspire to have their attic insulated and new doors and windows and then you'll be fine? But someone on a, you know, on a higher income can have a, a home, you know, that has a deep retrofit. So, I mean, those are the kind of challenges that when it comes and it's its daily outline when it comes to climate policy, those are the kind of challenges you have to deal with. And those are the things that impact on people's lives. But, you know, we're all contributing to the carbon taxes. You have to find a way to ensure that everyone can avail of the benefits of retrofitting. The other element is here, obviously, you can't just rely on carbon taxes to fund all of this, because over time, if you you know, uh, we're actually meeting our climate targets, the revenue from carbon taxes should reduce because we will be using different alternatives. So there won't be as much money in that pot. So, but there are still things that will have to be done. And I think the problem is at the moment, that revenue is being used for everything. So it's been used to fund just transition. It's been used to fund retrofitting. It's been used to fund the the Midlands programme but it's a limited pot, so we have to be more ambitious and think beyond that limited pot of money. And as Davy said, just the point in terms of, you know, we've seen the impact just in the past two weeks of the storms, and, you know, it's been headline news. How can we make the positive changes the communities are making headline news? And how can we make that accessible to people? So that beyond all the work that Cultivate is doing, going around and talking to communities talk to communities that we can really raise awareness that, you know, yes, I can make a change so that is going to make a real impact on my life and my community's life, and it's not beyond my reach. Mm-hmm. And there are very practical elements that can be done. And how do we even make the, you know, the, the things announced in the budget, uh, the grants, etc. How do we make them easy to, easier to apply for? How mm-hmm. do we make sure that people even know that they're there in the first place, you know, to sort of deliver on some of the, the goals and the aims we've set ourselves?
0: You raise a really interesting point when you talk about the fact that even if you had the upfront costs, you're not going to see that the, the economic side of, of retrofitting, you know, that that back into your pocket, upfront, you're going to have that kind of over a long period of time. And for people, you know, perhaps that are, are I'm aware of my own age, perhaps getting on in years, um, you know, that might be thinking about, well... I could, I could do this deep retrofit. I could spend this 25 or 50,000 upfront, but am I going to get that back? You know, how can, we, how can we change that direction? How can we look at, well, it's not just about that. It's about something different. And, and Dave, if I can come to you just, even the fact that you mentioned the 130 homes, presumably they're 130 energy efficient homes. So what can be learned from all of that?
2: Well, I mean, Eagle Village has 55 homes currently, and it's plans as 130. But it's had major blockages and hurdles, including an economic downturn, which wiped out 60% of our membership, and we've still struggled with. And now a sewage problem that's in the hands of Irish water for the whole town. So for the last six years, there've been no planning permissions available to the whole town of Clock Jordan. And this is the same, similar in other urban towns and villages, that we're waiting for our critical neighborhood infrastructure to allow us to move forward. But anyway, the, the point is, yes, they're all energy efficient, but here's my point, and I agree with everything Michelle says, but economy of scales. If we were looking at retrofits as a street, so we went in and retrofit the street, or if we could unlock the ability to put uh, solar panels on the south side of the street and not this individualistic focus that we continue to have. Now, I can understand it's a lot easier to deal with individuals, uh, than groups of people and communities, but I think we need to be moving beyond um, individual actions into well, what are the collective actions we can take that um, help us um, achieve these many disparate uh, policies that take us into this uh, green transition, just transition, and um, but in a with more ambition, you know, so the, to me, when we're talking about retrofitting homes and putting solar panels, how, lo- how long have we been talking about uh, feed in tariff and community energy? It's, it's almost the community energy side. Some good white papers a few years ago, it's almost been downplayed again. Oh, don't worry about the community aspect. And just on housing, I spent just quickly as a little aside, but it's relevant. And um, when we're looking at this individual collective, I spent a year with SOA, a collective of architects, to do a bit of research on community-led housing, uh, community land trusts, co-housing, different tenure models of housing. We seem to be fixated on the nuclear family, two up, two down, back, front and back, for everyone. You know. And could we have community Now this process included six big um, semi-state companies, the land agency, the housing agency, corporate Housing Ireland, the credit unions, and it had a, a four documents that came out, the forward by the, the president on the importance of community housing. Two months after that was all launched, big fanfare and a launch and the land agency launching it, the housing policy came out. Not one word when you search that policy of cooperative, community land trust, co-housing, to different forms of tenure, coming together and thinking about our neighbourhood, not our individual house. So we're stuck we're firmly in the in the treacle of individualism that we can't do uh, we'll have to go so slowly because it will all be one by one everyone thinking about their own house There, you know so how do we move beyond that is uh, to me a challenge and i we need both um, but i do think we need more uh, community-led approaches and helping people imagine what that might be because when I talk about co housing or community led, agri- uh, community supported agriculture, or the many different uh, initiatives we've got here that sort of show a community led approach, people are Well, that sounds great. I'd never heard of any of them. So it comes back to the problem of the media. The media aren't getting these stories out. There's some amazing stories around the country, across Europe, that are so inspirational, but we focus on the doom and gloom and we focus on the negative for where there's going to be begrudgery. So I think, I think the media have a big role here to help us understand and and move forward in a coherent way
0: thank you and i suppose to to wrap it all up if you were thinking about the budget so budget 2023 or you were thinking about what government could do within the, the remainder of its existing term you know what would be your main focus what would you really like to see michelle i'll come to you first because i'd like to give the last word to, to davie if i may.
1: I suppose looking at budget 2023, um, specifically, I'd be looking at a review of the tax expenditures, particularly the environmentally damaging subsidies. Like that's a really obvious place to start if you're going to look at funding for this in the long term. And I agree with Davey. It, it should be the, the community approach, not just the one off retrofitting of the one off home. How do you do it on an economy of scale? And then you'll get everybody involved in terms of the the, the you know the term of office of the government. Either the, the a new national index of progress, so using the well-being framework to you know report annually on environmental, social, and economic progress, or not, as the case may be, and the actual cost of the lack of progress in certain areas to us uh, as a country. So sort of developing shadow national accounts as well, and ultimately integrating. I'd hope to see by the end of this term of government that we managed to integrate a sustainable development framework into all of our, of our policies but particularly economic policy so that the economic goals do not have a negative impact on our social or environmental goals. So those would be mean my key areas there. Thank you.
0: And Davey final word with yourself.
2: Well, I agree with everything Michelle says, I think rather than a sustainable development framework at this stage with six, um, eight years left of the 2030 agenda that we need a well-being framework. And we build on the sort of indicators and the work that's been done on uh, those sort of framings into a way that um, brings coherence to the many disparate policies that we're seeing. Um, so with the climate and the biodiversity, a drive with the Green Deal from Europe, I think we could have much more cohesion going forward. And that's what I would hope that we could do in this term of government.
0: Thank you so, so much. With that, I think that's a perfect place to end. Um, I think we've given the full you know, history of it, the full engagement with it, and you know, real proposals going forward. So can I just thank you both for your time? Thank you to Davy and to Michelle. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Clay. Thanks, Michelle. Nice day.
0: I hope you enjoyed that if you want to know more about Social Justice Ireland's policy positions around sustainability and a just transition please go to our website socialjustice.ie and click on the sustainability tab for more information about Clock Jordan and the work of Davy and Cultivate please go to village.ie as always if you have any suggestions or queries or anything that you'd like to see on the next set of podcasts please do get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.